The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, imagine you are in a dark place. It's long, you can't see anything, and you're moving. A tunnel, perhaps. You walk forward blindly, hoping that nothing will attack you, nothing will harm you. Every instant, fearing the next step will lead to unspeakable horror. You might feel so disoriented you can't move. Perhaps you've lost hope, the hope that will propel you forward with the idea that the next step, or perhaps the one after that, will let you see a bit of light far off in the distance. Now, imagine you're in another dark shaft, only this one is vertical instead of horizontal. Once again, you're blind, you can't see a thing, and you're moving, but it's not step after laborious step. You're falling plummeting endlessly because this isn't a tunnel but a hole, so vast you can't even see the sides of it. And in a way, your movement here is effortless. You don't have to muster up the courage to lift your foot and inch your way forward because gravity's doing all the work. All you need to do is exactly what you are doing, which is to fall horribly. And in a way, there's no time to be scared by the unknown that surrounds you. But that doesn't mean you're not scared. You're scared every instant. Terrified you might hit ground. You have no idea when this will occur, if it does, as it seemingly must. But you're also scared by the experience of falling itself. That feeling of being unmoored. Nothing to cling to. Nothing to hope for. Just falling and falling and falling. He might be the darkest philosopher we have. What does it feel like reading him? Like walking through a tunnel or falling into a hole? Arthur Schopenhauer, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today, you brave and hearty souls, taking on Schopenhauer from a literary perspective, mostly. There's a side of Schopenhauer we won't really explore too much, and that's the more technical, philosophical side, where he inherited and advanced the teachings of Kant. That's for the History of Philosophy podcast, wherever you get that. We might touch on it We'll see. Instead, we're mainly going to be looking at his ideas, his view of the world and the prose and metaphors and analogies he used to convey it. We'll have an extended passage that I'll read for you so you get a feel for it. He had a fascinating mind in a more or less dull body, but maybe his body and his existence was not quite as dull as we sometimes think. We will see. But first, you might be thinking to yourself, Jack Wilson, what the heck are you doing to us? Here it is, February. We come here to read Jane Austen and J.D. Salinger and some European poet we've never heard of who won the Nobel Prize. We want to laugh with Mark Twain and cry with Chekhov and do both with Kafka. Where's Plato, Jack? Where's Sigmund Freud? Where's Louisa May Alcott? Well, they're in the archive, if you really want to know. But I take your point. I set this out as an inquiry into whether reading Schopenhauer is a tunnel or a hole. A little bit of hope or no hope at all. And you might say, why? And that's reasonable. I'll try to answer it directly as we get further along. But I can also say this. You don't have to take my word for it. 
that Schopenhauer is is relevant, maybe even central to literature. Here's a partial list of people influenced by Schopenhauer who claimed that Schopenhauer had been an influence compiled by the good folks at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This is in alphabetical order. I've just chosen a selection. Here we go. Charles Baudelaire, Samuel Beckett, Thomas Bernard, Jorge Luis Borges, Jakob Burkhardt, Joseph Conrad, André Gide, Thomas Hardy, D.H. Lawrence, Machado de Assis, uh, Mallarmé, Thomas Mann, Maupassant, Melville, Musil, Poe, Proust, Strindberg, Zvevo, Tolstoy, Turgenev, Yeats, and Zola. That's just the literary figures, the poets and playwrights and novelists that came afterward. That's not counting the philosophers, with Nietzsche primary among them, who were influenced by Schopenhauer, or the composers, Mahler, Wagner, Dvorak, Prokofiev, Schoenberg, and others. Oh yeah, Brahms. That guy, he, Schopenhauer anticipated Freud and Dada and existentialism. Maupassant said, even those today who execrate him seem to carry particles of his thought in their souls. End quote. Albert Einstein, perhaps you've heard of that guy, said that Schopenhauer was a genius and his thoughts were, quote, a continual consolation, end quote. An observer said Einstein used to sit reading Schopenhauer and he seemed so pleased as if he were engaged with a serene and cheerful work. Tolstoy once said, quote, At present, I am convinced that Schopenhauer is the greatest genius among men. End quote. What I said in War and Peace, said Tolstoy, Schopenhauer said first. The list goes on and on. Melville used to mark up Schopenhauer's work, especially the passages of misanthropy and suicide and extreme solitude. And let's not bury the lead. You're probably way ahead of me. All this influence of Schopenhauer is, is perhaps, at least in part, because he's miserable. Because people identify with it. They find consolation in it. They feel seen. As Melville did, if you feel like your sunny day is spoiled by an afternoon shower and maybe you have no umbrella, isn't that just how it goes? Maybe if you feel that way about life, if you're Eeyore, if you don't mind, maybe if that's your your state of mind, you don't mind reading the guy who says, umbrella? You didn't have an umbrella? Well, I don't have a roof and it's raining nonstop in my world thunderous buckets flooding down on me all the time. Okay, let's talk about the man, because this will help us see where this gloom came from. I'm taking much of this from an essay written more than 50 years ago by R.J. Hollandale, which is still included in the Penguin version of the book as the introduction, and a bunch of other, other sources too, but I'll try to cite Hollandale to give him credit when that comes up. Okay, Arthur Schopenhauer was born in 1788, a month after Byron, for those keeping track. This is of significance because it's a reminder of where we are in terms of Romanticism, which will become important later. Even more importantly, Goethe is 39 and has basically conquered the German-speaking cultural world. 
Hollandale has the very interesting theory that Goethe essentially looked around at what was happening in Europe and claimed for the German language all these fields that had not yet been established in German. So he wrote the model novel, the model play, the best travel book, the best autobiography, the best collected letters, and the best and most exhaustive body of poetry one could imagine in German. So for the German speakers who came immediately after, Hollandale speculates, there was nowhere to go creatively in the literary arts. Goethe had already claimed the territory, except in philosophy. That was the one area Goethe hadn't conquered. So all these would-be novel writers, poets, playwrights, these brilliant creative minds instead turned their their energies toward philosophy. It's an interesting thing to think about, and definitely Schopenhauer and later Nietzsche, who both prized themselves on writing accessible prose and avoiding the humbug and charlatanism, in Schopenhauer's words, of the more opaque philosophers, tantalize us with the idea of just what novels they might have left behind had they written novels. I'll note that it's like with Shakespeare. I've always wondered. It might have been the best novelist in the history of the world who never wrote a novel. I'll note that Schopenhauer, when he was finally discovered after decades of neglect, was helped along by an English journal editor named Mary Ann Evans, who, as it happens, was herself no slouch in the ideas department. And she was a novelist. We know her better as George Eliot. Chalk another one up to for Schopenhauer. <laughs> He had quite a few, quite a few admirers in the world of literature. Okay, Schopenhauer's father was a man of business, a successful merchant and ship owner and trader who expected his son to take over his business. In fact, he named him Arthur, it is said, because Arthur has the same spelling in French, German, and English which Schopenhauer's father viewed as an asset to someone who was going to conduct business all over Europe. We maybe don't talk enough about why parents choose the names they do and how that reflects their hopes and expectations for their children. Sometimes it might not be relevant, might be chosen for sound, but in, which is also, I guess, kind of relevant. In this case, it's not only re- relevant, but revealing. Arthur grew up under the weight of these expectations to become a man of industry, to follow his, his father, who was apparently very influential in his life, into the business. And, and Arthur planned to follow them, uh, planned to follow his father and follow these expectations, although it was becoming clear that he had a taste for the humanities, for literature and the arts, an itch that business was not going to scratch. He might have gotten this from his mother's side, as we'll see later. His father struck a deal with young Arthur when he was in his teens. This was kind of a trick, almost like you might might, uh, trick a pet into taking a bath or swallowing a pill or something. His father said, okay, you want a literary career? Fine. This begins with you enrolling in school in Hamburg and spending two years studying Latin and other dull subjects. That's the path to a literary life. Sound good? Oh, and by the way, it's too bad you're not choosing business because to prepare you for that life, I was planning to to send us all on a two-year trip through France and England so you can learn more about the world. 
Mm. The 15-year-old Arthur couldn't see beyond the immediate pleasures of a two-year trip through Europe rather than two years of dull study. And so he opted for the life of business. That dog will happily eat the peanut butter, even if it has a pill buried inside it. We'll worry about the pill later. But after the trip was over, they returned to Hamburg, where the family was now living after having left Danzig, the city of Arthur's birth. And Arthur started working as a clerk with a merchant in town, learning the ropes, becoming adjusted to the world of business, which he hated. His father was not a very happy man himself. He had frequent spells of depression. And when he was found dead a few months later, after they got back from their trip, it was just a few months later, he was found at the bottom of a canal. And the family assumed that he had committed suicide. Arthur was 17 and felt trapped. He no longer had the option to take over the family business that would soon be sold. He would inherit money but not for four years when he turned 21, a long time away in the mind of a 17-year-old. And the way his mother and sister were spending it, he wasn't sure how much money there would be. So for two years, he worked for this merchant, completely miserable, hating the job and hating life, bored out of his mind until finally, at the age of 19, when he was 19, his mother wrote him a letter releasing him from the commitment and freeing him to pursue literary studies if he wanted. He quit on the spot. He walked out, feeling a kind of exhilaration at the liberation. His mother was still in charge of the money for two more years, but he was able to go to school now and start the philosophizing that he found more to his taste. His mother, meanwhile, was already in the literary world. She was herself a literary-minded person, a successful minor novelist who hosted a salon, which had Goethe among the attendees. Arthur went there and quarreled with Goethe, who was impressed enough by Schopenhauer's mind to ask him to help with his work on colors and perception. Schopenhauer respected Goethe enough to assist, although ultimately he found that he, had, he and Goethe had divergent views. Schopenhauer also had, this might, be, this might be my favorite story in the Schopenhauer biography, although I probably shouldn't overhype it, but here we go. He quarreled with his mother about her spending and about her lifestyle, which he viewed as frivolous and selfish. He also partially blamed her for his father's death. He said she was out gallivanting while his father was ill, which deepened his depression. She had been a bit calculating in the marriage. Truth be told, her husband was 20 years older than she was, and she acknowledged that it was less love that had drawn her to him and more the wealth and opportunities that he would provide as a successful businessman. And it allowed her the possibility of hosting a salon, which she had always dreamed of. She was also somewhat selfless. To her credit, she acted as a nurse to wounded soldiers, and she was popular and in many ways admirable, the first German woman to publish books without using a pseudonym. Schopenhauer, though, resented her success. And here's my favorite story that we're coming to. He especially resented the sales of her books once he started publishing books of his own, and his books were a flop. He self-published them, and nobody bought them or read them. 
And once after he had written what he thought was his masterpiece and nobody bought it, he was irritated with his mother and he said, well, my book will be available when yours have long been forgotten. And his mother replied, yes, your book will be available. All copies of it. <laughs> Hollandale describes, though, the tears of joy that Schopenhauer felt when he, or that he exuded when he got the letter liberating him from the life as a clerk. But it's really the years before that, the trapped years, where we see Schopenhauer's worldview forming. It's suffering and then it's boredom. A literary spirit, an artist, a creative type who's trapped in a nine-to-five job. This is a kind of hell that Schopenhauer never forgot. In some ways, he grew over the years, but the bulk of his thoughts were formed as a teenager and young man in his early 20s. He repeated, refined, and enhanced those ideas for decades afterwards. But the basic thrust of his philosophy was there before he turned 30. We're going to have to talk about Hegel and the other German philosophers that were prominent while Schopenhauer remained obscure, but first let's talk about his own development. He read widely, but his instructor told him to focus on Plato and Kant, and that's what he did. Both were hugely influential in his thinking. They were both seeking to address the same philosophical problem, speaking broadly, what is the nature of reality, and how do we know it, and how do we fit in, and what does that mean for time? Where does history fit into this, and where does the future? Can we trust our senses to tell us what's real, but if we have a body and a mind, if we are physically present, and yet we can also imagine and reason and dream, I think, therefore, I am, I am, and I think, in other words, then what is that thinking? Is that part of the world too? Plato had men in caves, chained to see the shadows on the wall, looking only at what was not in fact actual. Is that our world? Is that appearances versus reality? Where we only see the shadows? Kant took this and ran with it. He was influenced by Hume too. He tried to refute Hume and for a long time couldn't, and said, in effect, the mind can be split into two parts, the part that perceives and the part that reasons. Then Schopenhauer followed Kant and believed that most other people misunderstood him, including, and maybe especially, Hegel. But Hegel, while Hegel is often said to stand for the principle of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, where you have an idea which is contradicted by another idea, which is then unified, elevating humankind to a higher plane, the synthesis, which is, it was not exactly Hegel's formulation in those terms. That came from others who followed Hegel. But he did argue that truth emerged from error in roughly this way, with a, a clash of ideas producing something closer to the truth, better. Schopenhauer objected to this idea. He said people don't really change. There's no elevation. There's no escalation. People are still wrestling with the same basic problems that they were in ancient Greece. He believed that his peers were too busy with ontological problems, like the search for God or the proof of God which distorted their thinking, and he thought that they were willfully and needlessly obscure to try to cover up the gaps in their thinking, which he called their charlatanism. He also famously 
scheduled his own lecture. He got a job as a university professor. It's <laughs> another good story. He famously scheduled his own lectures at the same time as Hegel's. And Hegel was the rock star philosopher and lecturer of his time. And he had hundreds of pupils showing up to hear his lectures. And Schopenhauer apparently started with five and then ended up lecturing to an empty hall. He didn't teach for long. He quit soon after, and forever afterward, he disparaged the academy and the academic life. Which, fine, it's easy enough to do when you've inherited uh, money and don't need to work. Schopenhauer's alternative to the Hegelian view was that the world was made of two things, the will and representation, also sometimes called an idea. These two things, for him, are not caused by one another, nor are they created by one another. They're like two sides of the same coin. There's an outer life and an inner life to things and people. An example might be my hand. A hand is a thing, an object. It lives in time and space. It's material. It's objectively out there. And yet my mind also has a conception of the hand. I know what it feels like to have one. I know what it feels like when it moves. I can feel it from the inside out, so to speak. It can cause me pain, which I can. my mind will feel. There's something inside me that correlates to the hand and to the rest of my body and other objects have this too, an inner aspect as well as an outer one. Humans and animals, most obviously, but so does everything. We only know the one. We know ourselves, our body, which has an inner and an outer aspect, but there's no reason to think plants don't have them too, or the moon or a mountain. It's just not available to us, and and what their inner aspect is is not the same as human consciousness, but theoretically, it's there. So... That's about as far as I want to go with that, because we're getting into the realm of philosophy and, I guess, religion, which is probably more than just literature, and it gets kind of technical. But for us, it's enough to know that reality has an inner nature and an outer one. And the inner one for humans is the will, striving to stay alive all the time and to procreate. Beating hearts, breathing lungs, sexual urges, all those are signs for him of the will to life. Hunger, too, and a mind that wants things, wants to eat, wants to get rich, which is replicated in everyone. This will to life is an incredible force. It's seemingly relentless and all-consuming. If you look around at your fellow humans, you'll see it everywhere. It's Sisyphean pushing that rock up the hill over and over. And although you might think that a system that can view inert objects as having a kind of inner life might connect us all give us a kind of joyous harmony with the universe and everything in it. We don't see that. We see instead the will grinding its gears at every turn, grabbing, grabbing, struggling to survive. Here's one of Schopenhauer's classic analogies. Quote, But the bulldog ant of Australia affords us the most extraordinary example of this kind, for if it is cut in two... A battle begins between the head and the tail. The head seizes the tail in its teeth, and the tail defends itself bravely by stinging the head. The battle may last for half an hour until they die or are dragged away by other ants. This contest takes place every time the experiment is tried. End quote. That's the life 
force in action. No recognition by these two halves of the same creature. Hey, we were we once were one, we can be so again, maybe, or or at least let's respect one another. It's kill or be killed. My will is all consuming, my will to life. I want, I want, I want. And then once once something is acquired. There's immediate boredom with it. At least that's true for humans. Reality is a series of wants, a struggle to get them, endless strife and suffering. And for humans, the most advanced cognitive creature, dissatisfaction. Life and existence is not enough for the human. We're going to return to that later. In fact, let's take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Schopenhauer did after he made these discoveries. He quit the academy in a huff. He was nearly unknown, unless it was as his mother's son. Nobody was reading his books. How did the man spend his time? We'll hear after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Like his great predecessor, Kant, Schopenhauer lived a life of routine. He lived in Berlin for a while and then moved to Frankfurt to avoid a cholera epidemic that had broken out in Berlin. And in Frankfurt, he fell into a pattern. For 27 years, he did more or less the same thing. He lived alone with one French poodle after another. Every day, he woke up at 7, took a bath, had one cup of coffee for breakfast, and spent the morning reading and writing. At noon, he practiced his flute for 30 minutes. He got quite good at playing the flute. Then he'd go have lunch at the Englischerhof, come home, rest and read until 4, then go out for an afternoon walk, two hours no matter what the weather was. At six, he'd go into the reading room of the library and read the London Times to catch up on the news. Then he'd go to the theater or a concert, have dinner at a hotel or restaurant, and get home by nine or ten, read the Upanishads or some other inspirational text, and fall asleep. For most of those 27 years, he was alone in believing in himself. Nobody bought his books. Nobody read them. There were hardly even any reviews. It was only in the last few years of his life that people discovered him. I wish someone would attempt 
he once wrote, a tragic history of literature, showing how the various nations which now take their highest pride in the great writers and artists treated them while they were alive. In such a history, that author would bring visibly before us the, that endless struggle which the good and genuine of all ages and all lands has to endure against the always dominant bad and wrong-headed. Depict the martyrdom of almost every genuine enlightener of mankind, almost every great master of every art. Show us how, with a few exceptions, they lived tormented lives in poverty and wretchedness without recognition, without sympathy, without disciples, while fame, honor, and riches went to the unworthy. End quote. Tell us how you really feel. Poor Arthur. It's hard not to smile at this. This was indeed his plight and his fate, his unhappy plight and his much happier fate. Why did he ultimately succeed? Well, Hollandale gives us six reasons six grounds for his success. Number one, the pessimism in Schopenhauer was new, and it came as a kind of breath of fresh air. The world's a hard place, full of suffering and undeniably bad things. It came as a relief to hear someone recognize that, to found a philosophy on it. It came as a relief not to hear, yet again, that things were getting better. Maybe they were bad and just bad. Maybe they were... Maybe... Maybe learning to accept that would help somehow. Maybe it gives you a platform for things to get better. Have to admit it's getting better. It's getting better all the time, sings Paul. Can't get no worse, sings John. Schopenhauer is the John Lennon here, but it's sneaky. It's sneaky, isn't it? Because there's a kind of optimism too. It says, well, Paul, that might be how it is for you, but it's not that way for me. I'm not just bright and cheery and optimistic every single day. I can't just turn that on because, in fact, I'm in pain. But hey, I hear you. I want to meet you halfway here. Maybe there's a floor to this. Maybe now things can turn around. Maybe if we start with honesty and accept that this world is full of all this struggle and pain, maybe we can finally start reaching upward from the bottom where we are now. Number two, in Hollandale's conception of the six reasons for Schopenhauer's success, is God. There's no God in Schopenhauer's philosophical world, which in some ways comes as a relief, because Western philosophy, the Christian tradition especially, has never figured out how to reconcile God and evil other than to, to fall back on he works in mysterious ways which is not what a rationalist philosopher trying to follow a rigorous course of logic wants to hear. Finally, here was a philosophy that didn't ask to bend in this direction and to address the question, how can God permit evil? That isn't an issue in Schopenhauer's world of will and idea. Number three in the reason, uh, list of reasons for Schopenhauer's success is his thesis that will is primary and intellect secondary, that we aren't just guided by impulses, we're governed by them. We're used to this idea now, in part thanks to Freud, but Schopenhauer was there first. 
Our rational side is not just driving our conduct, it's a tool we use. What drives us is our will. Again, an idea worth exploring. It rang true enough that people embraced it. Number four, the fourth reason is that Schopenhauer is, uh, for Schopenhauer's success, is that his ideas are simple and accessible. Only Nietzsche among the German philosophers employs less jargon, according to Hollandale. Schopenhauer doesn't trace through an entire history of ideas and their development, a la Hegel and his ilk. He deals with the world as it is today, immediate experience, sensations and urges that you yourself might feel. You can measure yourself and your own experience of life against the ideas in Schopenhauer and say, is this how life is? Is this what it feels like to be me? When I look around, do I see the world this way too? Sometimes reading philosophy can feel a little like arriving late to a party where the conversation is already so far along you can't really catch up. Well, you hear people say, well, to understand so-and-so, you have to read Hegel first, but really you need to read Kant to understand Hegel, and Kant was really responding to Hume, and, and so on and so on, all the way back. And you think, okay, great, but why? What am I going to get out of that investment? I'll understand them, but how will that help me? Schopenhauer goes straight to the me. Here's how the world is. What do you think? The fifth reason goes hand in hand with the fourth, that Schopenhauer is a joy to read his prose. He demonstrated, says Hollandale, quote, that the problems of metaphysics could be discussed in German in a way comprehensible to the non-specialist reader. Probably he was the first German philosopher to be read as literature by a public not primarily interested in reading philosophy, end quote. We'll hear some of that in a little bit here. I think you'll agree with Hollandale's conception there. And sixth, Schopenhauer benefited by capturing the spirit of the age, and in particular a notion that there was such a thing as progress, inventions, innovation, technical, technological achievements, but it was not explaining the core of the human condition, of life. Money poured in. Things were definitely getting better. No one wanted to go back to the old days. But the money was not pouring into everyone, and the money anyway didn't bring along happiness necessarily. Schopenhauer offered an explanation for why there was this disconnect. Schopenhauer never got married. He was sexually active, and he had a few relationships. In fact, he viewed himself as a great philosopher of love, the greatest philosopher of love, but his view of love was closely connected to his theory of the will, which is more Darwinian. Some have pointed out it's not the will to live, as is sometimes said, but the will to life, meaning procreation is a big part of it. We look to correct our flaws in our partners, he said. Short men like tall women and and women with big noses like men with smaller noses and so on. One of Schopenhauer's otter theories, but maybe that was true for him anecdotally. We look... <laughs> we, anyway, the will to procreate, that's sort of Darwinian too, the will to procreate is so strong, it blinds us to our partners, he said. 
Quote, the lover shuts his eyes to all objectionable qualities, overlooks everything, ignores all, and unites himself forever to the object of his passion. He is so completely blinded by this illusion that as soon as the will of the species is accomplished, the illusion vanishes and leaves in its place a hateful companion for life. End quote. This is the, <laughs> this is the great philosopher of love. In his own view, you can tell he's not exactly a philosopher of marriage. In his emphasis on sex, though, he was ahead of Freud. Freud read Schopenhauer and approved of this part. Thought there was something to it. One of Schopenhauer's courtships was with a woman who was much younger, 17 to his 39 when they first met. She found him old and a bit disgusting. He didn't recognize this and instead asked her father if he could court her. It didn't pan out. He had another on-again, off-again relationship that lasted longer, but he couldn't bring himself to get married. So in the end, it was just him and the poodles, all of whom he named Atma, because he viewed dogs as being essentially interchangeable. He did have one nasty incident in his life where a loud neighbor who lived below him in his rooming, he, he rented rooms, a loud neighbor below was frequently making so much noise it was making it hard for him to work. He, She talked loudly, apparently, and would have loud conversations, and he would complain about the noise. And once she came up and they argued, and he pushed her, and then after that, what happened is in dispute. She said that he pushed her down the stairs, and he said he pushed her out of his doorway, and she fell down the stairs on purpose so she could sue him. I'm kind of inclined to believe her account. And anyway, a court did the same. She did sue him and she won. And he was forced to pay her a sum for years afterward as compensation, which he did until the year she died. While we're tallying up nastiness, let's add some kindness. When he died, he donated his estate to disabled Prussian soldiers and the widows and families of soldiers who had been killed. In the end, though, it's his pessimism that sticks, his pessimism and his prose. Let's take our final break, and then we'll hear some of his writings on struggle slash suffering and boredom. How low are we going to go? Is this going to be our tunnel or our hole? And what kind of affirmation can we find at the end of it? Is there any? Well, I'd like to think there are a few. There are five or six things that helped him and maybe can help us too. We'll find out what those were after this. The passage I'm going to read is from his essay On the Suffering of the World. It begins, quote, Unless suffering is the direct and immediate object of life, our existence must entirely fail of its aim. It is absurd to look upon the enormous amount of pain that abounds everywhere in the world and originates in needs and necessities inseparable from life itself as serving no purpose at all and the result of mere chance. Each separate misfortune, as it comes, seems, no doubt, to be something exceptional. But misfortune in general is the rule. 
I know of no greater absurdity than that propounded by most systems of philosophy in declaring evil to be negative in its character. Evil is just what is positive. It makes its own existence felt. Leibniz is particularly concerned to defend this absurdity, and he seeks to strengthen his position by using a palpable and paltry sophism. Let me pause there. You might remember Leibniz from your readings of Voltaire's Candide, which mocked Leibniz's view that all is for the best and the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz said, cold is the absence of heat, so too is evil merely the absence of good. But this, as Schopenhauer points out, is a sophism. Cold is not incidental to heat. It's not a feature produced by heat and its absence. It is itself produced by the speed at which molecules circulate. But Schopenhauer has another reason for turning this around. Let's go back to him. He says, quote, It is the good which is negative. In other words, happiness and satisfaction always imply some desire fulfilled, some state of pain brought to an end. This explains the fact that we generally find pleasure to be not nearly so pleasant as we expected, and pain very much more painful. The pleasure in this world, it has been said, outweighs the pain, or at any rate, there is an even balance between the two. If the reader wishes to see shortly whether this statement is true, let him compare the respective feelings of two animals, one of which is engaged in eating the other. Okay, let me pause there again. This analogy (laughs) is striking and makes sense. An animal eating the other. Well, if you're the one being eaten, the experience is dramatic, it's vivid, it's awful, it's transcendently bad. But if you're the one eating, it's just another step on life's path. You might feel good while doing it, but you won't feel like it's the best experience you've ever had. And in fact, you'll be hungry again soon enough. So... A great analogy, except, well, you're only eaten once, right? If you eat, it's routine. I'm not sure it's comparable. Yes, we all have one moment of death, but we might have a million moments of pleasure, a trillion, small and large, pleasure small and large. And why isn't that the nature of the world? Not every pleasure that I have creates something negative in others, but let's continue because that's not exactly what Schopenhauer is saying either. He's also pointing to all the negativity of everything else. Think more of the nine-to-five job and the miserable marriages and the incessant melancholy, the general dissatisfaction that accompanies all of those pleasures or that succeeds them immediately. We're not all Paul McCartney here. Back to Schopenhauer. Quote, The best consolation in misfortune or affliction of any kind will be the thought of other people who are in a still worse plight than yourself. And this is a form of consolation open to everyone. But what an awful fate this means for mankind as a whole. We are like lambs in a field, disporting themselves under the eye of the butcher, who chooses out first one and then another for his prey. So it is that in our good days we are all unconscious of the evil fate may have presently in store for us. Sickness, poverty, mutilation, loss of sight or reason. No little part of the torment of existence lies in this, that time is continually pressing upon us, never letting us take breath, but always coming after us like a taskmaster with a whip. 
If at any moment time stays his hand, it is only when we are delivered over to the misery of boredom. But misfortune has its uses, for as our bodily frame would burst asunder if the pressure of the atmosphere was removed, so if the lives of men were relieved of all need, hardship, and adversity, if everything they took in hand were successful, they would be so swollen with arrogance that, though they might not burst, they would present the spectacle of unbridled folly. Nay, they would go mad. And I may say further that a certain amount of care or pain or trouble is necessary for every man at all times. A ship without ballast is unstable and will not go straight. I kind of like this, that little stretch there from Schopenhauer. He's sort of saying... Look at all this misery. You know it's true. Look around you. Everyone is miserable. But what would be worse is if everyone was happy. (laughs) Imagine being surrounded by a bunch of happy people. That would drive you crazy. It would drive them crazy too. Okay. Back to the passage. Quote, Certain it is that work, worry, labor, and trouble form the lot of almost all men their whole life long. But if all wishes were fulfilled as soon as they arose... How would men occupy their lives? What would they do with their time? If the world were a paradise of luxury and ease, a land flowing with milk and honey, where every jack obtained his jill at once and without any difficulty, men would either die of boredom or hang themselves. Or there would be wars, massacres, and murders, so that in the end mankind would inflict more suffering on itself than it has now to accept at the hands of nature. In early youth, as we contemplate our coming life, we are like children in a theater before the curtain is raised, sitting there in high spirits and eagerly waiting for the play to begin. It is a blessing that we do not know what is really going to happen. Could we foresee it? There are times when children might seem like innocent prisoners, condemned not to death, but to life, and as yet all unconscious of what their sentence means. Nevertheless, every man desires to reach old age. In other words, a state of life of which it may be said, it is bad today and it will be worse tomorrow, and so on, till the worst of all. If you try to imagine as nearly as you can what an amount of misery, pain, and suffering of every kind the sun shines upon in its course, you will admit that it would be much better if, on the earth as little as on the moon, the sun were able to call forth the phenomena of life, and if here as there, the surface were still in a crystalline state. Again, you may look upon life as an unprofitable episode, disturbing the blessed calm of non-existence. And in any case, even though things have gone with you tolerably well, the longer you live, the more clearly you will feel that, on the whole, life is a disappointment, nay, a cheat. If two men who were friends in their youth meet again when they are old, after being separated for a lifetime, the chief feeling they will have at the sight of each other will be one of complete disappointment at life as a whole, because their thoughts will be carried back to that earlier time when life seemed so fair as it lay spread out before them in the rosy light of dawn, promised so much, and then performed so little. This feeling will so completely predominate over every other that they will not even consider it necessary to give it words. But on either side it will be silently assumed and form the groundwork of all they have to talk about. 
he who lives to see two or three generations is like a man who sits some time in the conjurer's booth at a fair and witnesses the performance twice or thrice in succession. The tricks were meant to be seen only once, and when they are no longer a novelty and cease to deceive, their effect is gone. While no man is much to be envied for his lot, there are countless numbers whose fate is to be deplored. Life is a task to be done. It is a fine thing to say defunctus est. It means that the man has done his task. If children were brought into the world by an act of pure reason alone, would the human race continue to exist? Would not a man rather have so much sympathy with the coming generation as to spare it the burden of existence, or at any rate not take it upon himself to impose that burden upon it in cold blood? I shall be told, I suppose, that my philosophy is comfortless because I speak the truth, and people prefer to be assured that everything the Lord has made is good. Go to the priests, then, and leave philosophers in peace. At any rate, do not ask us to accommodate our doctrines to the lessons you have been taught. That is what those rascals of sham philosophers will do for you. Ask them for any doctrine you please, and you will get it. Your university professors are bound to preach optimism, and it is an easy and agreeable task to upset their theories. I have reminded the reader that every state of welfare, every feeling of satisfaction, is negative in its character. That is to say, it consists in freedom from pain, which is the positive element of existence. It follows, therefore, that the happiness of any given life is to be measured not by its joys and pleasures, but by the extent to which it has been free from suffering, from positive evil. If this is the true standpoint, the lower animals appear to enjoy a happier destiny than man. End quote. He goes on to discuss religion and how it's distorted people's views on the true state of the world, which is that evil is the most prominent feature. Harshness and that everything that seems good is merely a cessation of evil, a temporary pause in the evil. And then he concludes his essay this way. If you accustom yourself to this view of life, you will regulate your expectations accordingly and cease to look upon all its disagreeable incidents, great and small, its sufferings, its worries, its misery, as anything unusual or irregular. Nay, you will find that everything is as it should be, in a world where each of us pays the penalty of existence in his own peculiar way. Amongst the evils of a penal colony is the society of those who form it, and if the reader is worthy of better company, he will need no words from me to remind him of what he has to put up with at present. If he has a soul above the common, or if he is a man of genius, he will occasionally feel like some noble prisoner of state, condemned to work in the galleys with common criminals, and he will follow his example and try to isolate himself. In general, however, it should be said that this view of life will enable us to contemplate the so-called imperfections of the great majority of men, their moral and intellectual deficiencies, and the resulting base type of countenance, without any surprise, to say nothing of indignation. For we shall never cease to reflect where we are, and that the men about us are beings conceived and born in sin and living to atone for it. That is what Christianity means in speaking of the sinful nature of man. 
pardons the word to all. Whatever folly men commit, be their shortcomings or their vices what they may, let us exercise forbearance, remembering that when these faults appear in others, it is our follies and vices that we behold. They are the shortcomings of humanity to which we belong, whose faults, one and all, we share. Yes, even those very faults at which we now wax so indignant, merely because they have not yet appeared in ourselves. They are faults that do not lie on the surface, but they exist down there in the depths of our nature, and should anything call them forth, they will come and show themselves, just as we now see them in others. One man, it is true, may have faults that are absent in his fellow, and it is undeniable that the sum total of bad qualities is in some cases very large, for the difference of individuality between man and man passes all measure. In fact, the conviction that the world and man is something that had better not have been is of a kind to fill us with indulgence towards one another. Nay, from this point of view, we might well consider the proper form of address to be not Monsieur, Sir, mine hair, but my fellow sufferer, Soshi Malorum, Compagnon, de miseries. This may perhaps sound strange, but it is in keeping with the facts. It puts others in a right light, and it reminds us of that which is, after all, the most necessary thing in life, the tolerance, patience, regard, and love of neighbor, of which everyone stands in need, and which, therefore, every man owes to his fellow. End quote. Okay. So there we go. There's our first example of how this view of the world can actually be a good thing, how it can be helpful. Once you know this, once you recognize it, you'll feel compassion for your fellow sufferers. They're struggling just as much as you are. The world is such a cruel and awful place. Why not reach out and help? Why not show some tolerance and patience? And there are other places to look for hope which we see elsewhere in Schopenhauer's writings. There are aesthetic pleasures, literature for one, and painting, and especially music, which Schopenhauer viewed as the purest form of art, or at least the closest to his concept of will, that inner life that everyone has, that everyone's existence has. He says music is where you see it. You can feel the expression of will in music, and you can experience the will of others. Where the you don't need words for it. Words would only get in the way. Music is where you can feel it. In painting, he especially liked the emphasis of a painter like, let's say, Vermeer, if you're imagining a painting like that, a still life, the way that a painter can emphasize a moment, freeze a moment in time. A painting, the way a painter can capture the spirituality, let's call it, of the mundane. It's a way of ignoring the past which had been so full of striving and struggle in the future, which will be full of still more of it, and instead celebrate the individual moment. What does this sound like to you, dear listener? Does it sound like be here now? Are we knocking on Eastern philosophy's door? Indeed we are. Schopenhauer also found grounds for optimism in Eastern philosophy and religion, Hinduism and Buddhism. The texts and ideas from these religions were fairly new in Europe at the time, and he took pains to emphasize that he had arrived at his philosophical worldview independently, 
through his study of philosophy from Plato and Kant and his rejection of the Hegelians around him. But he took it as a confirmation that many of these same ideas were found in Eastern religions. These are sacred ancient truths, he would say, understood by a majority of the people on the planet. Buddhism has four noble truths. Existence is suffering. Suffering comes from desire. Suffering can be alleviated by letting go of desire, and there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. Schopenhauer said, I had three of these four, all on my own. Not bad. Nietzsche would build on Schopenhauer's ideas and turn them into something more self-affirming, grandiose, intoxicating, not just the will to life, but the will to power. An idea that, yes, if everything is struggle, I will be the one who conquers. It's an inverted form of Schopenhauer, and it can be more appealing to young people especially. But when you outgrow Nietzsche, when you come to view the selfishness in Nietzsche as unsupportable, and you look for community, for family, for compassion, for caring, for giving those things as well as getting them, it's somewhat surprisingly Schopenhauer who is there for you. Where's the salvation wanting less, recognizing that your desires are leading to your miseries, that those desires and getting them won't make you happy, even satisfying a desire. A desire is ephemeral. If you can abolish this side of yourself, or recognize it and mitigate it, you can find bliss, a redemption, a salvation, even you can be a good person, helping others, feeling compassion for humans and animals and things in the world. Metaphysical insight, says Schopenhauer, can tranquilize the will, freeing yourself from suffering and struggle. A tunnel or a hole? Do we fall in? Nothing to grasp, nothing to cling to, nothing to stop the fall? A terrifying abyss? There's no God here, no promise of heaven, no code of conduct handed down by a priest. It's philosophy and philosophy only. For some, that might in and of itself turn this into a hole. Nietzsche knew it would feel that way for many in Europe at the time. And I think it's fair to say that's still the case in the West. But I'm going to say that it's a tunnel, which of course is just a hole turned on its side. Schopenhauer is far too generous a writer to make it feel like a hole reading him. If for no other reason, then it's very pleasant to read these works, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, we walk forward, exhilarated and stimulated and serene as Einstein was. That sounds more like a tunnel, doesn't it? Step after step, lifting our foot and bringing it down. And isn't that life too? A groping forward. Maybe there are moments that feel like we're plunging or plummeting, but mostly it's daily life. That's what we wrestle with. The seconds as they tick by, the boredom always threatening to set in, the weariness, the sadness of progressing into old age. We enter this tunnel because we are humans and we're aware of our condition. That's the privilege and the burden of us having these beautiful minds of ours. And so we grope forward day after day, hour by hour unable to see the end and unaware of whether there will be anything at the end. But we're definitely not alone, and maybe we're not always in the dark. Maybe as part of our literary inheritance, we've been bequeathed some flashes of insight that help light the way. 
Maybe in the dark, we smile and nod and keep going forward with a little more pace, a little less fear, a lightness in our step even, because our companion Schopenhauer has just lit a match. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Arthur Schopenhauer for giving us a a good dose of gloom and a little ray of hope. Speaking of hope, I hope you subscribe so that you can hear some forthcoming episodes of the History of Literature. We're going to have a very fun episode soon with Rupert Holmes, author of the Pina Colada song and a Broadway hit musical based on an unfinished book by Dickens. And he's now written a very delicious book, the first in a series about a kind of Hogwarts for murderers. We will have that soon. And we'll have a conversation about Elizabeth Bishop soon and some more Oscar Wilde and some more Nabokov. Nabokov, in particular, his relationship with the cinema. We play the hits, people. We play the hits. The Wife of Bath is coming up, too, and I hope you're all looking into Persuasion. If you haven't read that Jane Austen novel in a while, our three-part episode on that is coming up soon, too, and a look at Black Cinema from the year 1989. Very fine vintage that year. Lots to uncork. And can I tell you that Henry James is reaching out once again to me, demanding some attention. We might take a look at another one of his stories soon as we looked at The Beast in the Jungle. Was that last year or the year before? A deep dive into the thickets of the old master's mind. Ah, We have so much good stuff here in the world of literature. Life is good, isn't it? Be good to each other. It's a cruel place out there. A tough place for saints and sinners alike. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.